All right, well, I want to invite you to find Luke chapter 20 in your Bible, if you've got a Bible along with you. Luke 20. If you're just joining us, um, popping in uh, for a weekend or new to Prairie Hill, we've been going through the Gospel of Luke. We have reached, um, if this is your first first time here in a while or your, your only time here for a while, you came on the climactic um, weekend. We have actually reached a climactic interaction in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus has had some other tense, difficult, super intense conversations with the religious leaders, especially in Nazareth in his hometown. But this interaction that we're going to read about today is is the one that seals their desire to put Jesus to death these religious leaders that he encounters um, in the capital, Jerusalem. One one really good question for us to be able to answer as um, Christians, as people of the Bible, is why did Jesus die? From a a human perspective, why did Jesus die? We, We know from a theological big picture, God's Perspective, as far as what he was accomplishing in the cross. But from a human perspective, why would a person so obviously good and so obviously compassionate and so helpful, why, why would such a good person be put to death, be persecuted to the point of death? Why did that happen to him? It's good for us to be able to give an answer to that question. This passage explains why. There was a dynamic present between Jesus and the religious leaders that's probably present in every every club, every church, every service organization, every office, anywhere where humans are gathered, this dynamic is present. The power dynamics. Who gets to be in charge? Who is the one here that has the authority? Whose voice carries the weight? It's really not hard at all to understand why Jesus dies. There were power dynamics in play, there were counterclaims to authority. And the passage that we're going to read is the attempt to solve the conflict through conversation, like through exchange of words and arguments. Jesus came into the city demonstrating his authority. We talked about that last Sunday. He comes in not quietly, but he comes in um, riding on a donkey like a king would come in. He makes a king's entrance into the city. Then he goes and he clears out the temple. He takes the prerogative on himself to decide what gets to be in the temple and what doesn't. And then he takes up the position as teacher in the temple and presumes to officially teach the nation of Israel. Those are his claims that he's made to authority. And the religious leaders are not just going to let it go. So this is the climactic conversation between them in the Gospel of Luke. The participants are Jesus and the religious leaders of Israel. Okay, so here's how we're going to do this. We're going we're to talk about Jesus first and just focus on him. 
Then we're going to talk about the religious leaders, focus on them and their agenda. And then at the end, the last thing we're going to do is we're going to extract from the conversation, we're going to look at their conversation and say, okay, what are the universals in that conversation? What are the universals that actually still apply to us today in the Christian organizations that we're part of, including the church? Because the same dynamics are still in play. All of these power dynamics are still here. So at the end, we're going to extract some things that that we can use in a practical sense. Now, we're not going to do all of that today. Um, I intended for this to be one sermon, but as I got into the week and just got going and saw... How much there was to say, I decided, no, we got to break this into two parts, okay? So we're only going to talk about Jesus today. Is that okay with you if we just talk about Jesus? Okay, let's do that. Next Sunday, we'll do part two, and we'll talk about the religious leaders and the universals and all that, okay? So today, only Jesus. And we're only going to talk about verse one. So we're going to read verses one through 19 of Luke 20, and we're just going to talk about verse one. Okay? All right, let's do it. If, you, if you're able to stand this morning in honor of God and his word, I want to invite you to stand for the reading of the word. This is what we find. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it was that gave you this authority. We know, no, parenthetical, we know what they mean by these things. It's everything we talked about last week, right? They're observing this. Who gave you the authority to do these things? Verse three, he answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And what he means by that, brothers and sisters, is the baptism that John was offering to people. John the Baptist baptizing people. Was that baptism, that initiative by John from heaven or from man? Verse 5. And they discussed it with one another saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man... All the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third, this one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. 
But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. Father, uh, help us in our understanding. Help us in our response of love to what you have shown us here. And we pray uh, prospectively that you would help us as we continue this study next week and think about what does this mean for how we relate to you and people? What does this mean for us as an organization? We, we need lots of help. We believe that we can find it here. We pray now as we look specifically at Jesus that you would open our eyes and our hearts once again to his beauty, just how valuable and necessary he is. Why he came, what our response should be. We pray you'd help us by means of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for this window of time and agreeable place to think about these things. We submit ourselves to your authority. In Jesus' beautiful name, amen. Please be seated. Our first look is at Jesus. According to verse 1, Jesus is in the temple. Notice what the text says his activity is. Uh, We read that he's teaching. And he's preaching the gospel. Now, at first, that might not seem extraordinary. You might think, well, of course Jesus is teaching and preaching the gospel. But think about this. When we talk about the gospel, we always talk about the centrality of the cross. When we preach the gospel, when we talk to someone about the gospel, when we go through that process of sharing the gospel with another person, we always say something at some point, say something like, Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. The atonement is central to the gospel. Now read verse 1 again. Jesus is in the temple preaching the gospel. Now what's fascinating about that? It's fascinating because he's preaching the gospel, but the cross event hasn't happened yet. Not only has it not happened yet, it's unimaginable at this point, at least to the people who are listening to him teach. Jesus is not saying to them, in a matter of a few days, I'm going to die on the cross as payment for your sins. Jesus preaches the gospel without talking about the cross. How does he do that? We never preach the gospel without talking about the cross. 
So how does he? What would would the content of his gospel have been? Well, actually, it isn't difficult to piece together from Luke's account, like we've gone all the way now through chapters 1 right up to uh, chapter 20. We've had 19 chapters to look at Jesus' message. It's not difficult to piece together what the three elements of his gospel would have been. Number one, the kingdom of God is here. Number two, the necessity of repentance. And number three, the necessity of belief in me, in Jesus. The kingdom is here and can be entered into through repentance and through belief in me. That is, through belief in Jesus. Kingdom, repentance, belief. We actually get help from Mark's gospel here because Mark has a beautiful summary of Jesus' message and very concise in chapter one that Jesus was going around proclaiming the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Same three points. The kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. So we can be fairly sure and really I think we can be certain based on the rest of Luke's account that we have in these three things the skeleton of what Jesus' message would have been to these people he's teaching in the temple. Enter the kingdom through repentance and belief in me. Now, we could say the same thing a little bit differently and maybe get a better idea of what kind of religious claim Jesus is making and and why it's good. He's saying that for us, for people, the necessary thing when it comes to having God's favor is not trying harder. He's saying that for people, people like us, for all people, the necessary thing when it comes to having God's favor is not trying harder to be good. He doesn't come proclaiming a message that says, the kingdom of God is here, repent and get serious about obedience. His message is repent and believe in me. See, you've got an Old Testament in your Bible, that whole front two-thirds. And the major thing that the Old Testament demonstrates is mankind's inability to keep God's law, even under ideal circumstances. Even after they've seen God do miraculous, generous things on their behalf. Even after God has promised that horrible things will happen to them if they don't obey the law. None of those things mattered. They couldn't keep the law. In spite of miracles like food from heaven, seeing seeing food appear every morning on the ground, in spite of the, the waters being parted in front of them so they could cross on dry land, in spite of astounding, powerful deliverances, in spite of blessings like the fruitful land that they were just gifted, 
in all of the wealth of Solomon's kingdom, in spite of all the warnings that they got, warning after warning after warning after warning from the prophets, that if you, if you don't repent and keep the law, God's going to come and take away our land, wipe us out. We're going to be destroyed by the enemy. We're going to be exiled. None of those things mattered. Because in the end, we don't care. We love sin. No matter what we saw yesterday in terms of um, blessing from God, and no matter what we're promised about tomorrow instead, in terms of consequences from God, in the moment, all that goes out the window, and we just love our sin. Do you agree with me? Have you seen it in your own heart? Like, look back on your life and say, oh my goodness, I can't believe how, God, how much God has done for me, and yet in the moment, it just didn't matter. Or yeah, I know the warnings about the consequences of sin, but in the moment, it just didn't matter. No matter how hard we try or how favorable our circumstances are or how dire the warnings are, we cannot and we will not meet God's standard of holiness. And the Old Testament is just a really long account of how that's true. Years and years and years of failure. Well, then someone shows up. Someone performing miracles. Someone generously giving out food. Someone delivering people from bondage. Someone giving warnings. But he doesn't say, try harder, do better. He says, believe in me. Come to me. And the reason that he can say that is that he came for the very purpose of fulfilling God's law completely. Down to the last tiniest requirement. Do you remember how God gave his people the command, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? He actually did that. Do you remember how God gave his people the command, you shall love your neighbor as yourself? He actually did that. God, who gave us his law, also gave us someone who fulfilled his law perfectly. Something that we have demonstrated as a human race that we could never do and would never do. The Old Testament is a record of that. Because of our failure, God in his mercy and his grace, instead of condemning us all for our failure and shaming us and destroying us, decided on a different plan of action. He sent us his son who kept his law perfectly and has promised that whoever turns away from their own efforts to save themselves through their goodness and instead places their trust in his son, Jesus, will be saved. 
the message that the people whom Jesus spoke to on that day long ago, the message that they needed and the message that you need and the message that I need is that we can't save ourselves by trying harder to be good. You will not enter into God's favor by trying not to swear so much or trying not to drink quite as much or trying not to smoke quite as much or at all or by not dancing or not playing cards. (laughs) It's not a matter, earning God's favor, getting God's favor is not a matter of getting a little better handle on your lust and not looking at that stuff so often. It's not a matter of controlling your anger a little bit better. Earning God's favor, getting God's favor is not a matter of helping people a little bit more, working on yourself, giving more money away. It's not even a matter of going to church more often. Making more consistent and greater efforts and all those things will have advantages for your life but will not get us to the point of purity that God requires. See, God requires purity on the inside too. Not just outward compliance with the law. That's the, just the staggering, awesome thing about the Sermon on the Mount is when Jesus comes along and says, fulfilling the law isn't just a matter of complying with all these externals. You have no idea how deep purity and compliance goes down to your very fiber of being. This Amazing revelation that when God examines a person for compliance with his law and he asks you the question, did you commit adultery with someone? In your lifetime, you might be able to say, no, I didn't. But what you may not know is that from God's perspective, adultery happens in a moment with a look with a look of intent and a look of longing and desire to break your covenant that you made with your spouse. Just the desire to break your covenant with the spouse you promised you would never forsake. That's adultery. The mere momentary desire to break your covenant. You know why? Because God's never wanted to break his covenant with his people. In God's evaluation of a person's life, that counts as adultery. So can you still say that you're pure? When God examines a person for compliance with his law, he asks the question, did you murder anyone in your lifetime? You might be able to say, no, I didn't murder anybody. But what you may not know is that from God's perspective, murder happens in a moment with a thought, with a thought that wishes, I wish that person weren't here. That person's not as good as me. I'm angry with them. I don't like them. I hate them. We insult them in our own mind, and in God's evaluation of a person's life, that counts as murder. Murder. 
can you still say that you're pure? Can you say that you're not an adulterer and a murderer? You know, this, this may look like a gathering of pretty decent people. <laughs> this is a room full of adulterers and murderers, okay? It just is. We, we as Christians should be the most humble of all people because of all people, we know who we really are. We agree with God's perspective on who we are. There's no hiding it. I hope that the result of this little exercise is that you can just understand how impossible it is to meet God's standard. His standard is simply too high. His standard is himself. If you can't be as holy as God, you can't meet his standard. And yet, you must. That should leave us all in a place of despair, being told that we have to be holy or else there are dire consequences like eternal destruction apart from God. And at the same time, being told that the standard of holiness that we have to meet is impossibly high. Now, here's this person, Jesus, in the temple. He's teaching, he's preaching. He's preaching the gospel. Gospel means good news. What's the good news? The good news is that Jesus came to keep the law on our behalf for us so that anyone, anyone of any nation, of any language, any member of the human race can be right with God by placing their trust in Jesus' perfect life. His is the only life that can be trusted in this way. That's why we preach and teach the exclusivity of Jesus. That's why Jesus is the only way to God, because no one else has kept the law perfectly. He is the law fulfiller, the law keeper. He alone is pure. He came for that exact purpose, to fulfill the law of God for you, because you can't. And no one else can or has done that for you. That's why you need Jesus. That's why all religions are not the same. Turn away from whatever else you think is bringing you closer to God. Whatever philosophy that you have been interested in lately, whatever spirituality, whatever other religion has caught your fancy, Whatever trust you're placing in yourself, your self-improvement project, please just rest from your self-improvement project. Rest from the efforts you've been trying to make to be good. Jesus invites you to come and rest in him. That's why he said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. You will find rest for your souls. It's rest from self-righteousness efforts. Jesus invites you, you, you yourself to come and rest in his perfections. To believe in him means to trust him. That you're trusting that he brings you to God based on his merits, not yours. Jesus on this day preaches the gospel without mentioning the cross. He invites people to come to him and believe in him. 
He presents himself as absolutely necessary for every person because he alone has kept the law of God. And this is good news. This is gospel because at the moment of our greatest despair, seeing our inability to please God, God came himself to fulfill his own requirements and to offer life to everyone who is willing to take it for free. I hope you can see that God paid the whole cost himself, including satisfying his justice in the cross of Christ, something that we'll learn about and read about in what's yet to come in the Gospel of Luke. But right now, in this passage, Jesus is about to be interrupted. Can you believe it? Preaching the message of all time, the most beautiful, the most important message that's ever been heard, and he's interrupted by some people that have a problem with him and with his message. And we'll get into the dynamics of that problem next Sunday and see how Jesus responds to it, what we need to learn from it. That's next Sunday. Today, we celebrate the truth that there is therefore now no condemnation. Please let this sink into your hearts, whether you have believed this message for years and years and decades or whether you have never believed in it before. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because he has fulfilled the law on your behalf. Therefore, we are no longer condemned before God for our failure to keep his law. We are sons and daughters. We are brought near. We are loved. We are kept forever through faith in Jesus. Jesus, the faithful one who obeyed God in everything and always. Even though it cost him his life, he came to preach the gospel to you and for you. So please, exhale and believe and live. This is for you. Lord Jesus, thank you that at such cost to yourself and about to be interrupted and dragged away, thank you that in your final days and hours you did not hold back from explaining clearly the purpose for which you came to be the law fulfiller and to bring all us helpless ones to God when we place our trust in you because you know our nature. You know that we couldn't and wouldn't. And yet at such great cost to yourself, you came and gave us the message and then sealed the message by laying down your life and rose again in victory never to die. Amen.